Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Here today on the show, we've got the legend, Matt Penny, in the building. We are going to talk about the Boston Celtics and how they rebuild because Penny is up in that neck of the woods. We're going to talk about some of the guards in the early first uh, or late first, early second round range. We're going to talk about the new NBA draft combine and is it worthwhile? Is this even worth doing? Uh, and then finally, we have some bubble thoughts and takeaways and whether or not the recency bias of the bubble is going to kind of replace the recency bias that typically occurs for scouts in the NCAA tournament. So I'm really excited to talk about that with Penny. So Matt, he is here with me. How you doing, man? Uh, I'm right down the middle right now. You have the the high of a Patriots win at one o'clock, the low of a Celtics win at seven thirty. So if you split the difference, that's probably where I am right now. So let's talk about the Celtics because uh, I recorded with Seth Part now on Monday. We talked a lot about the NBA Finals and the Miami Heat and the Los Angeles Lakers, but I find where the Celtics are going fascinating this summer because you brought up a really good point here in terms of and this happened before the show, of they have 12 guaranteed contracts next year. They have a few restricted free agents. They have three first-round picks. They have to figure out how they're going to handle everything that's going on here. So I'm very intrigued to see how they kind of retool and kind of maneuver this roster on the fly because I don't know that they really need a whole lot to figure out – how to continue to compete for the NBA finals every year. I mean, they're going to get natural improvement from Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They're going to get uh, another year of Kemba Walker and Gordon Hayward in all likelihood. Marcus Smart's still going to exist. There are a few real need positions, but I feel like they're in pretty good shape. I agree with that. And I, I felt that they probably matched up maybe a little bit better with Milwaukee than Miami too. I mean, you, you touched on all my points that they have 12 guaranteed contracts and you look at the bench and, Gordon Hayward's going to be fine, right? He played on one leg, really tough through it. I mean, Cantor gave him some okay minutes. Robert Williams and Grant Williams gave him some good time. But you probably need another scoring punch off the bench, whether that's a, a bigger guard or maybe some more side up front. I'm with you that they're going to be okay. I mean, we're in such a alarmist place in Boston. And just kind of like an aside for – I think people know how maniacal Celtics and, and Boston fans are. I got my hair cut on Thursday – the barbershop socially distanced appropriately and uh there's one other guy in there and he said you know i was listening to talk radio and they're saying that stevens doesn't pull this out maybe firing him so that's like the craziness that you're dealing with uh with fans every day in this area but i, I think part of the solution like you said is they need some dynamic scoring and and i would say probably a, a bigger guard you saw a lot of the stuff that miami was doing against Kemba Walker, putting him in screening actions. Spolster ran a really good ATO out of a timeout to expose him in the post. So I, I think that would help where they're going. But the, the cupboard's fairly full. And to your point, like you're, you're going to have to make some moves here. Tatum and, and uh, Jalen Brown will be a year older. You hope their growth and maturity will continue to, to stay on the trajectory it's on. But you're far from a finished product. I'm so optimistic. I'm not one of those people that it's jumping off the train right now. Yeah, I think they have every reason to be optimistic if you're a Celtics fan. Uh, they have one of the best young cores in the league. They have a really good point guard in Kemba Walker, and they have uh, 
younger players in Grant Williams and Robert Williams who are growing and will in all likelihood figure out uh, how to help them. So I guess that here is where I go from here. You mentioned the idea of getting a guard, and I agree with that. Brad Wanamaker is a restricted free agent. I think they probably should try to bring him back as long as the price is appropriate. I think they could use another scoring option off the bench. They really just didn't have any real versatility of options that they could go to, especially with Gordon Hayward kind of hobbling around. I mean, shout out Gordon Hayward for being willing to play uh, on the leg that he was playing on just with, with his wife also giving birth to their fourth child while he's in there. Yeah, for sure. Like I, I I'm sure that Gordon Hayward is probably getting killed right now uh, in the Boston media because he had what, like two points and like one rebound or something yesterday. But yeah, that's absurd. And I think that it's credit to him that he was willing to come back and try to fight through it. Cause he really did help them. Uh, I believe in it was game three, whenever he returned uh, really kind of break through that zone momentarily, at least. But the big thing that they need to break through the zone is just more scoring options and uh, an offense that isn't reliant or as reliant on isolation creation as it is, because this offense didn't have a ton of ball movement, I felt like. And that's that's what they could use almost more than anything. They need guys who can really, really move the ball at a high level. Yeah, that's a good point. And it, you saw in the game last night or whatever it was that it got some good action, some decent action when Tice was setting that high ball screen and Kemba was going off that and then hitting the wing and Jalen Brown was ripping through and he did a really good job attacking. But they hit this this – Mark at five minutes and 40 seconds left in the game, they're down one. You blink two minutes later, they're down 10. They start taking even more bad threes. They dig this hole. They probably wait a little long to go back to going small to Grant Williams on BAM. And then by the 240 mark, they're, they're down 14 and the game's over. Uh, so I was confused to kind of get away from what they were doing that made them successful. I mean, they're 15 for 46 from three. It's hard to win games like that, uh, especially with Gordon Hayward, who he did help to space the floor even on one leg. I mean, you have to respect him. They're closing out a little bit there, but there, there's not that guy off the bench that you're like, okay, here's, here's a quick 10 points over 22 minutes. There's that. And a lot of what worked for them in that big run in the early fourth quarter, uh, even in the late third quarter, I guess is when it kind of started was they were using Grant Williams and just switching every action defensively. And right. They went away from that. I don't know why they went back to Tice, to be honest. I thought that was, uh, if anything, was the Brad Stevens downfall uh, outside of just not being able to run anything offensively. Like, they got zero good shots in those last, like, eight minutes, it felt like. I kind of felt like they should have gone back to switching because and playing Grant Williams because what it was doing is it was increasing the amount of ball pressure that was out on uh, some of Miami's ball handlers, and it was creating more transition opportunities offensively. So not only was it working defensively, it actually was helping them get easier looks offensively. Right, and it's it's hard to predict that Bam Adebayo is going to have this like awakening moment where he's like, oh, I'm a point guard now. And then he they have an ISO, he face up, he dumps up Tice, and then he's like, you, you see the the momentum and the the swagger of like he knew that he could do whatever he wanted, and at that point it was too late. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the thing is with Tice, he got 
demolished by Bam. And I'm not saying that Grant Williams wouldn't have also gotten demolished by Bam, but like there, there there's just no circumstance where you could put Tice back in that game. And then after he got destroyed, like I don't understand why they decided to roll with him like the whole way. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but Brad is a lot smarter than I am. So maybe I think he's smarter than me too. Uh, yeah. Someone had a tweet too that like it's really great to see all these like people in other professions say they're better coaches than Steve know what to do. It looks like on super surface level, Tice gave him some really good minutes throughout the playoffs. I mean, I don't want to say he won them games, but he was there to push him over the top last night. Uh, obviously, not so much. Uh, the Miami team that they lost to, I do feel like as an aside, was like created to haunt me. Uh, Duncan Robinson played. Division three basketball. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Uh, I've, I've never <laughs> I heard that story that in my yeah. life. <laughs> you had a pause. It was like, oh no, is he processing that? Uh, so he played for Middlesex Magic, uh, unsponsored grassroots team in this area, and he was just a miss that everyone here missed on. I mean, Adam Finkelstein writes the New England Recruiting Report. He works for ESPN. He's the best of the best. He had him forty seventh in the class of New England. I mean, it just happens that kid got a lot better. You have Tyler Hero who. The Celtics had the stories trickling out. They had him on the draft board. He goes to Miami. The heirs let out of the room. They draft Romeo Langford, who uh, I'm not going to write him off yet, but he's got a long way to go to pick up him. And then for Bam Adebayo, he played on the Adidas circuit for Team Loaded, but he played in a couple Under Armour events, uh, one which was the Elite 24, which was an all-star game in New York. And at that game, we built a basketball court on the Brooklyn Bridge Park, it was like a, a soccer field, and they had levels and laser beams. They put that out there, and they they put up seats, and it's this big production. And we got these hoops, like real NBA grade baskets, not the kind that you kind of roll out for summer camp and put like an old forty five pound plate on, like real hoops. And I remember the guy setting it up. I said, "Are we going to have any issues here with kids dunking?" And he looked at me and kind of said. You know, buddy, like you need like ten thousand pounds of force to move this thing. I said, okay, fine. So games <laughs> game start, tips it off, and some of the best players in the class are playing, and we're kind of celebrating on the events and operations side because to get there takes a lot of work. And it's the first half. Someone misses a layup, and somehow Bam and Michael Porter Jr. catch a ball off the rim like together. They simultaneously dunk the ball, alley-oop it, and, like, the hoop flies up off the ground. It's like my life flashed before my eyes. Like, this is going to be a disaster on Sports Center in three hours. Luckily, the hoop fell back into play, but I had that same pause when he faced up from the elbow <laughs> and dunked in to me end of the series. So, thanks, oh, my. And then also Pat Riley is the head of the Evil Empire for the Lakers growing up. So, it's just like every pin that can be prodded into me just happened at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, like, the hero stories with the Celtics – that's real. Um, yeah, which, which I had heard, but you always take with a grain of salt. And it's like everyone's dusting off the Robinson played at Williams College. Tyler Hero was the guy. No, he's not. What are we going to do? Damn, I'd yeah, I mean, the draft Tyler Hero. Yeah, like I had Hero, at, I had Hero mocked to them in my final mock because I'd been told that they liked him. So, like, it was, right. it's definitely a thing. Like, I, yeah. I know that it, it's like kind of, you know, almost pouring salt in the wound now and really i'm just like kind of fucking with you at this stage right but also also ironically isn't this the player we're like describing ah oh, some good size off the bench can score a little bit can do some stuff to create an offense there's a punch like yeah it's tyler hero great 
Well, really, I feel like I need to uh, pour some salt in the wound for you because uh, the the fantasy league that you and I are in. Uh, I would say God, at the end. The, the the team the team that I have built in that league is uh, the worst team in fantasy football history. Like it's you up. Drafted, there. I mean, you drafted six wide receivers to start. Like I respect your work and you should probably be an NBA front office. But the first time I see you as a GM, that was what you rolled out. So. You yeah, take what's on the board, I guess. I, I didn't draft six. I drafted three <laughs> in a row to start. Yeah. Yeah. Three, three. I drafted three in a row to start. It was not. It's not like total abject failure. The problem was that all three of those receivers missed the first round or missed uh, week two because it was Michael Thomas, Chris Godwin, and Kenny Galladay. And uh, it's hard to come back if your top three picks are all out at the same Thompson time. Was tough. I have Chris McCaffrey, who is figuring out, finding a way. Yeah, the thing about this fantasy team that I drafted was. <laughs> it's hurting I, me. It's deep down. Feel it. Oh, no. You're coming back from commercial, being like, well, wait a minute. I have another point here. Oh, no, it's painful. Uh, I figured that I could make it work later at running back this year because I didn't really like the position. Uh I figured DeAndre Swift would take over in Detroit midway through the year. Josh Kelly is a good flyer to take, right? Josh Kelly's really worked out, by the way. Like, Tony Pollard is a good flyer to have in case Ezekiel Elliott gets hurt. Benny Snell, I think, is still probably the best running back in Pittsburgh, even though he's not playing. Uh, I now have Cam Akers, uh, who is out right now, but I picked him up off the waiver wire. So, like... I'm not dead at running back, but the problem is now, like, I think that the second running back I drafted was Tariq Cohen, who tore his ACL yesterday. So, like, yeah, you need to score 100 plus points before we start talking about depth, but I, I get it. It's, it's hard. I usually stink. Like, the drafts I think I do well in, I stink. The ones I think I stink, I do better. Yeah. It's, and like, I didn't even draft like that poorly. I drafted Dak Prescott, who's been freaking awesome. Like, Chris Godwin scored yesterday. Kenny Galladay scored in his first game yesterday. Like, Darren Waller was amazing in week one. I probably should have won week one because I drafted Jonu Smith but started Darren Waller over him. Like, it was... Yeah, I had Mike Evans. That was my favorite line yesterday. Two catches, two yards, two touchdowns. We'll take it. Love it. That's great. Like, that's what you're looking for. So, there's a chance I go winless in this league. I really think there's a chance I go winless in this league. There should be a penalty for winless. I don't know what it is, but we should discuss that. Yeah, I'm not sure what it's going to be, but we'll have to discuss it before we go nuts. We get but some yeah, time, a lot of time. There's there's a non-zero chance that I go winless in this league, which is hilarious because like my the one that I'm in with like my college friends, like it's like a crazy dynasty league, and my team is like dominant. That's like. like saying in, in middle school you have a girlfriend from another town, right? Like, oh yeah, no, yeah, she lives over there. She's not, she's not here. She she lives over there. It's a good like, line. It works. Yeah, yeah. You should you should see. Uh, she looks great. Great. But good God, uh, this this team is a nightmare, and it's the bane of my existence setting this lineup every week. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's talk about the Celtics real quick in terms of what they do going forward here, because I think that that's interesting. You did mention the 12 guaranteed contracts. You did mention the three draft picks. Uh, my guess here in terms of what they try to do, they have Daniel Tice. They have Robert Williams. I think they're pretty comfortable at the center position. Uh, they might try and draft one like that one stunned me, but I'd be relatively surprised if both Ennis Cantor and uh, Vincent Poiray or on this team next year just because I don't see a world where they get real minutes. 
Yeah, I also don't see a world where they keep all their three draft picks either. I don't think it's possible. Uh, if they do, I think you're probably looking for, like we talked about, a, a guard or a bigger guard, probably another big despite what we just said, and then a roll of the dice on a guy. Uh, but uh, but I'm not, I, I wouldn't put any stock into them keeping all three. Yeah, I'd be surprised if they did as well, but we also said that last year and they did end up keeping three picks. They moved around the board and kind of made some different things happen, but... You know, they did end up taking all of Romeo Langford, Grant Williams, and Carson Edwards. So, like, I can't tell. I can never tell with this team because then, like, what was it? It was the Jalen Brown draft. They ended up taking, like, six or seven guys in that draft. And, like, not right. all of them made the team, obviously. They stashed a couple. But it was biz- – like, it's very bizarre the way that they tend to operate on draft night. Yeah, they could stash, too. That's a good point. End of the first. I mean, you have some guys that – you could just put overseas and see if they pan out. It's not a hit against what you need to put on that year next year. So let I me mean, just kind of put a bow on this thing. What's your kind of projected? You, I'm, I'm reading that you kind of see the Celtics starting five more or less same, and then adding another punk or two on the bench. Yeah, I do see the starting fives the same. Like I would be trying to draft like a playmaking guard if I was them, uh, and preferably one with some size that's kind of a differentiation from Kemba Walker like RJ Hampton I think makes sense for them if they could move up for Tyrese Halliburton I think that would make a lot of sense for them Killian Hayes would make a lot of sense for them um again like I think both Hayes and Halliburton probably don't get to 14 I think Tyrese Maxey yeah like I think Tyrese Maxey makes sense for them because Tyrese is bigger and stronger and more physical than Kemba Walker is even though he's only like 6'3 uh Desmond Bain, I think, makes sense for them. And then you always have to account for these like bigger wings just because they really like to take these guys like Elijah Hughes, Robert Woodard, Cassius yeah. Stanley, Leandro Romaro. Totally. Like they're going to take at least one of those like bigger wings slash like wing forwards in this class just because they have draft picks and there are going to be guys that fall to 26 or 30, right? So. Josh Green's another one that like makes sense for what they tend to like. So yeah, you're, you're rattling off like every name I had in my head for those spots. Uh, I know you so, hate it, but maybe Tyler Bay, I'll read later. Relax. Um, and, no, and like, okay. no, no, no. I'm kidding. <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to say that name here. It's like Beetlejuice. Uh, but people think I don't like Paul Reed. Like Paul Reed's fine. Oh, I was talking like, about Tyler Bay, not Paul Reed. Oh yeah, I don't think Tyler. You start every great. podcast with saying like I don't get it, but he's 36. Um, yeah, right. Every every time I do a mock draft, it's like, yeah, look, it's I don't get it, but 35th. yeah, uh, no. But if they if they want to play small even more, I mean, I, they got some good minutes out of Grant Williams. But maybe they need a little bit more size there, a little bit more versatility. So somewhat of that yeah. mold, I, I see too. Yeah, like a precious Achua would be pretty interesting for them. I think uh, if they do want to have an option that's bigger, longer, and super athletic. Uh, that can also like switch on defense because Precious is just a crazy athlete who is definitely going to be able to switch. Patrick Williams is also a guy that like fits everything that they look for in prospects. It feels like uh, right. just big, enormous body that also is going to be able to be developed skill wise. Like they, there are a lot of guys that I think make sense for them in this draft. Like it, that's why I'm like struggling. Is there a chance that they decide to, actually use a lot of these picks because it is a draft where a lot of the players tend to profile for what they look for it is such a bam out of bio draft too it's like every every prospect is he bam can you do the bam stuff uh i like 
precious to me. That and not try to be a wing like Jimmy Butler. I think it'll be great, and that's what he did. Memphis, he really bought in. He bought in at Mount Vernon Academy the year before. I'm just, I'm worried that he wants to shoot and wing, and he's working out with Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf in New York, who's an unbelievable shooter, and I'm glad he's adding that as, as hopefully a more consistent weapon, but he needs to focus on what he's good at, what makes him intriguing for the modern NBA. Yeah, he's a five, I think. Like, I think Precious well, he's is... He's definitely a five, but I don't know if he five. thinks he's a five. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's, that's definitely everything I've heard as well. Like, does he believe that he's a five? I'm not sure. But if he plays the five, he's actually, like, to me, like, the comparison that's been made is Onyeka Okongwu to Bam Adebayo. I think mm. Precious is closer to Bam in terms of athleticism mm. and switchability. And, like, if you look at Memphis's rim protection numbers this year as well, Memphis was the best rim protection team in basically all of college basketball this season. Uh, I would imagine that Precious played a pretty significant role in that, uh, in addition to some of the bigger bodies they had there. So I, I get it. And I do like Onyeka better because I think Onyeka is a much better offensive prospect who knows his role and is a much better passer and can kind of do some stuff. But I think Precious is closer to like the athleticism and the uh, quick twitchiness that Bam has. And I don't think either of them are going to be Bam. Like, let me be very, very clear on that. But, oh, no, no, no. I, I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that when you're looking at the physical tools and you're trying to make a comparison to like that kind of skill set, Precious is closer for me personally. I think, I think I'm going to go the other direction, but I, I listen and I hear your argument. I, I just like Okongwu more. I mean, I don't, obviously, he's not going to be around when the Celtics are picking. And Bam is also so freaky athletically and just going back and watching some of his old high school highlights and stuff he was even like bigger he's leaned out in my opinion yep. uh he he was more versatile could switch more I mean, he just wasn't doing that stuff as much in high school and college he didn't have to so we shall see i guess with that one so but if we made this a bam out of bio drinking game people would be like in trouble with the nba draft because everyone's just gonna make this the the bam he, he's the guy how can we do it no, like BAMs don't exist every year. Like that's that's not a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everyone's going to try and find it. I totally agree with you. But these guys aren't a thing. Like you have to take what's there in the draft. Like just because James Wiseman is not necessarily BAM at a bio in terms of his like quick twitch switchability stuff, it doesn't mean he's not going to be a very effective NBA player. Right. Yep. I do think a lot of people are going to try to replicate some of Miami's formula and their DNA for roster creation too, because they did it a little bit differently than what you would expect. I mean, so often we just rely on, okay, you need one of these four wings guys to win the NBA championship. And that still may be true, but they went a little bit of an unorthodox way. They run through Milwaukee, they run through Boston and they're like this surprise, almost like Cinderella NCAA tournament type team making the NBA finals. Well, yeah. And like you add two, Go four ahead. spacers. You add a, a veteran point guard, some size up front, but the, the tougher, bigger wings. And you go zone, you get Crowder and, and Butler up top. And it's just a different look and kind of the way our, our, our minds have been shifted to put five guys on the court. Well, I think that what's interesting about the way that Miami has gone about this is that they, they have built from the wing out at the end of the day. Like that, that's right. absolutely what they've done here. Like they drafted or they 
got Jimmy Butler and they drafted Tyler Hero and they found Duncan Robinson. And like you look at their acquisitions this year, it was Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder. Like they, they really have focused on building out wing depth, which I think is the most important thing that you can do in today's modern NBA. And I've certainly been making that point for years upon years now, it feels like. Uh, having said that, it's just very interesting to me that the thing that did put them over the top was this multi-versatile center in Bam. Like Bam was the best player in that Boston series by far. And trying to find that guy and trying to find that, like, do you think it's as simple as trying to find that archetype of player that can unleash it? Or do you think that you need to be able to do everything that Bam can do? Because like, Part of the thing with their zone is that they can play guys like Jimmy Butler and Jay Crowder, and they can even play Bam out top on their zone. And then it just becomes impossible to like, you know, everyone's saying, oh, you have to have to get the ball to the foul line. You have to get the ball to the nail. Do you know how fucking hard it is to get the ball to the nail into the foul line whenever you're trying to throw entry passes around Jimmy Butler and like Jay Crowder even? Right. It's crazy right. difficult. Yeah, and that's why I, I thought, again, the Celtics did a good job. They're screening that first guy and getting to the nail. And then having them react a little bit, and then it was still quick shots from the perimeter. In, in terms of back and finding this guy and, and unleashing it or, or whatnot, like I, I don't necessarily think it's it's taught, but it's it's digging beyond surface level stuff of what did what they do in college that really who they are as the the full player product person. Now the the other Miami folklore story that's making its round again is the Bam and they workout and maybe we transition combine stuff after this. It's like he yeah. went in there, they put him in some ball screen stuff, some swooping action. He said, "You guys got me messed up." He didn't say messed up. He threw the ball. He went nuts. He said, "That's our guy." And maybe it takes those type of workouts to see more of that from players. So. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to a few different people that had Bam in for workouts, and they were just like, "This guy's a monster." Like this guy is exactly what we want. Like he was, I, Bam was kind of all over the board for teams uh, on draft day. Like not everyone had him there, but teams that had him in for workouts consistently had him higher that I talked to. Like he was, he was not getting much farther than 14 if he fell beyond where Miami was. And let's do that to transition to the combine stuff because I don't actually think that the combine itself is particularly valuable. I do think that team workouts are valuable in getting a guy in and having your guys, your trainers, your coaches run him through what you specifically look for, for your own roster and your own style of play. I think that stuff is actually pretty valuable. The other part of it that's valuable is getting a chance to see guys and the adjustments that they've made in the time off between when they stop playing college basketball or pro basketball in the case of international players and when you actually see them. So this year, that's going to be almost six months in between when players have last been seen and when they have now been seen. Players can do a lot when they're training at basketball nonstop for six months. I actually really think that the workout process this year is going to be really vital seeing like, for instance, I'll I'll let you talk about this, but you know, you grabbed a uh, clip of RJ Hampton's 
workouts in, I, yes. I believe he's in Memphis. And yes. the jump shot looks very, very different now. Right. Yeah, no, it looks significantly better. He's working with Mike Miller, who's obviously one of the better shooters uh, in his time in the NBA. And he's, I mean, RJ shot before, if you watch old film, either from high school or the NBL, kind of like slung it from the left side of his face a little bit. His legs are all over the place. He's a much better base now. Uh, it looked a lot cleaner coming off his hand. He looks more calm. And there, there's nobody in the gym. And, and we jokingly say it's workout season. But like those are the type of things you hope to see from other guys. You don't know what they're doing for six months. I mean, there's guys, the NCAA term ends in a normal year. They all, all go live out in a house together. They kind of get out of shape and throw it together for three weeks for a combine or a few workouts. Now that you have six months, like I, I'm more interested in what guys like sat around and, and kind of did nothing. Uh, and you might not even know now because the combine list came out and a lot of guys that are in the first round, which is, is historically happens a lot, aren't going, aren't participating. So a lot of it will still be Intel work. I think we'll see some more stuff leaked out of these workout videos and, and they're going to have to trust what their scouting departments are telling them too, because you're not going to have your hands on guys. Like you said, traditionally you would. So I guess that where I would go from there is, do we actually think that this combine is even worth doing? Like, is it worth getting all of this measurement info, all of this athletic info, all of this jump shooting info? Like, I kind of don't think it is. There's really only one thing that I think is valuable that's going to be coming out of this combine. Uh, obviously, it's the medical aspect of it. Like, NBA teams need to get their hands on as much medical information as they ha as they can in order to feel confident about taking players. But it is really interesting to me that the NBA is just like kind of going through with a makeshift combine because of that. Cause I, I just don't know what they're going to get out of it. I give them credit for trying to do something. I mean, I don't know if we talked about on here before offline. I don't kind of understand why they're not just flying those kids and maybe one trainer and agent down to Florida where they all are in a bubble and quarantine them for a few days and do the stuff down there. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's worthwhile a little bit, I, mean, I, I received the, the actual shoot workout from an agent that it's, you can do it. It's just a funky process. You can do it up to three times and you upload it on a, an NBA portal. And the workout is you warm up with 50 free throws. You spot shoot 50 shots at five spots around the perimeter, 30 shots off the dribble, mid range star drill. So imagine you're running spot, spot like a star for 20 shots. You do that from NBA three for 20 shots. Side to mid side, two minutes from four NBA spots, three point endurance, five minute catch and shoot NBA threes, and a cool down 50 free throws. I don't know what that's really showing, other than if I'm trying to show them one of the better shooters for this workout. But it, it just brings shades of Ejon Leon and how good he looked and then being the sixth pick. And you lose out on that competitive aspect of guys going head to head and one on one. Like there's a lot of similar type pieces under the first mid second that it could be somewhat of a separator if they actually got in one two settings that they do sometimes in, in old NBA draft workouts. But uh, I, I do think in short, I think it's better than nothing. I think some of these guys too have put on some weight, some weight, maybe they've grown a little bit, their bodies are still developing to be able to put that down on paper. There, there's some value there. So I, I definitely think there's value in seeing a guy shoot jumpers 
And if there have been substantial mechanical adjustments, like RJ Hampton's sure. thing is very interesting to me. Uh, obviously, this is a Wednesday that this podcast is being released. You might be listening to it on Thursday. By now, you'll have read like a pretty deep dive on RJ Hampton's jumper that I've written uh, over at The Athletic. So please, if you haven't, go read that. It really is a pretty drastic change and it's not perfect by any stretch. Like there's still work to be done. I think as you see that like, you know, I think everyone around RJ understands that the work is not done yet. And I think RJ understands that as well. Um, it's very tough though to know oftentimes what to make of guys that have totally changed their mechanics whenever those mechanics aren't being like closed out on in a competitive environment, right? Like you need to see, do these mechanics stick whenever a player is, you know, getting a hand in his face, flying at full speed, a seven foot wingspan hand, like that is almost certainly going to make it really, really difficult to shoot the shot. Or, are they reverting back to what they've always done in the past? I think that that's a really, really difficult concept that is tough to wrap your head around. And I think that what it does is it creates this six month layoff creates a lot more variance in the draft process and in the evaluation process and in just generally the selection process. Because if I was a team and I didn't get a chance to see what kind of work a guy has done over the course of those six months. I would, I don't know what I would think about taking that guy. Like there is a very real chance that there are players who make genuine substantial leaps over the course of from when March ended until when the draft happens in November. That is an enormous window of time to get better. And that's an enormous window of time that most guys just don't have like think back to the Kawhi Leonard draft that happened in the summer when the lockout happened and the season started if I remember correctly in December that gave him even more time to rep through the mechanics of the jumper which I think long term has had very real substantive benefits over his career I really wonder if we're going to see some very different developmental curves now from these guys getting such a long break to really work on the little intricacies of their game and the little flaws in their game yeah and like tyrell terry is apparently training for a ufc fight and put on 20 pounds of muscle. like that like that Love stuff it. you don't you know you don't see right and now you see it and it's like all right like i'm, I'm looking at all the quotes like all right uh he gets blown up and screens they go at him they attack him all right does he get bullied and plowed over as much now i, I don't know maybe uh, my thing we really is, just like, don't know. That's the thing. No, you don't. I mean, does that slow him down even more? Is that is that better? Is that like the the Grant Riller when he tore his ACL and his scrimmage his freshman year? And then he spent the whole year bulking up, and then he really used his upper body and chest to to take charges and be a solid defensive player. After that, is that a similar byproduct? Maybe the NFTs. I mean, there are some guys who are uh, still going through the process. It's fascinating to me that your boy Pokashevsky is just all in on being this international man of mystery. Like, oh, not doing it. So he's he's out. Uh, the clips we have of him are playing in a Greek B division. Uh, he was injured for a lot of the year, and he's just like, all right, roll the dice. Like, he's built a good buzz. There's some talk, late lottery, 
early second, he's crept up boards and a lot of people are kind of like, who's this guy? And the mystique grows and, and maybe it's a boom, maybe it's a bust, but if that's the, the chance you're going to have to take on him. Yeah, the, the Pukashevsky stuff is so incredibly difficult to parse through because, like you said, the quality of competition of what that guy was playing was so minimal. Like, people bring up, like, the NBL. Oh, like, is the NBL actually a real league that is good uh, whenever you talk about LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton? Yes, the NBL is actually a strong, competitive, professional league with high-level players. Like, there are former NBA players in that league. The league that... Alexei Pokyshevsky was playing in. Penny might be able to play in that league right now. Like you, I you hope, really. I hope so. I, I saw I saw some clips and it did look like the Oakswear Men's League I played in Austin after I graduated. Like they had like you know a, a lone volleyball net, lonely standing in the corner. They had like baskets pushed away and turned sideways. It, it's hard to get anything out of because. He doesn't, unless you read and see that he's seven feet tall, in those videos, he doesn't look seven feet tall. He looks like he's 6'6", the way he kind of fluidly moves. He gets shots off and go to the rim. Uh, but he's seven feet tall, 7'3", wingspan. But he's just doing whatever he wants to almost detriment of his development where, yes, he's shooting threes. Yes, he's going to the, the lane. He's throwing no passes. He's blocking second jumps. But you just don't know if it, it really makes any sense. It's just... He's so slight. I mean, he's listed right now, I think, at 109 pounds. And after I watched him, I went back and dug through just to see similar type guys of Porzingis. The draft night was 220. He's 240 now. Uh, Dragon I, I will say was this, 226. Though. Like, he's 109 pounds. Like, it, it's so you got to take it with a grain of salt when you're watching clips and he does a UCLA cut and he's bumped there against those guys. Like, what's going to happen when you get a forearm in the back in the NBA? Like, uh, so it's, it's tough because Pokyshevsky is going to enter the draft at 18, um, isn't going to turn 19 until December. Porzingis, if I remember correctly, did not enter the draft in his first eligible year. And I want to say, like, I want to say he was, what, 20 when he got drafted? Yeah, I think sure. He was, he was older. Yeah. So, yeah, like, he, he had 18 months. And in those 18 months, like, Porzingis did really bulk up. Uh, cause I remember, like, I've re- I wrote about it at CBS. Like, I talked to his trainer over in, uh, Sevilla, Larry Sanders, like, and not the Bucks Larry Sanders, although this Larry Sanders also might have worked for the Bucks if I remember correctly. Um, and he was like, yeah, we put on like one kilogram per month, basically, for X number of months to the point where, he put on 15 pounds over the course of a year, which is rare because typically during a basketball season, guys lose weight, right? Yep. Because you just are doing a lot of traveling and you're doing a lot of, uh, you know, in-game stuff and you don't necessarily get a chance to really continue to work on your uh, conditioning a lot of the time and continue to lift weights and continue to build bulk, right? But with Porzingis, they did it differently. Um, I- I'm just very... I don't know how the Pokyshevsky thing is going to go. Like it's, and that's not because I can't evaluate, like I can evaluate every single thing that this guy has done and I can evaluate every single thing that he does wrong defensively. And uh, I can evaluate how smooth mechanically he looks in terms of his jump shot and how he can run off of screens and set his feet and shoot with a really strong base and have really good shot versatility because of it. Like we can run through every single thing, but 
So much of it is dependent upon factors we don't know in terms of how this guy's frame is going to age. Like, I, I have no fucking idea how his frame's going to age. And, and he's had a knee injury kept him out three months, I believe, in the season. He, like, he's not, I don't think he's 19 until December, right? So it's, it's yes. not a finished product. That's a guy, if you have, just in a fantasy world, if the Celtics have three picks, like that's the dice roll you take with the third one, right? It's like, all right, two guys help now. If it works great. If it doesn't, that's fine too. Or if he goes to a contender late in the first, don't need him right away. There's not that pressure to produce and he can develop and can add strength. Maybe he is a, a boom prospect. I'm terrible at international guys. I'm terrible at figuring out international competition. I'm sure someone's going to tell you or me that, oh, Giannis played in the Greek B League. Didn't know that one either. Uh, so I, I don't know what to make of him. My take is like, I don't have a take. I know it's like a terrible stance to have, but it, it's just, I know he's semi-well-traveled. He's been scouted multiple times. He was at the Jordan Brand Classic Camp. He was at Basketball Without Borders in Belgrade. He was at the All-Star Weekend thing in Charlotte. Uh, he played on the U-17 World Championship team for Serbia. So he's been around a little bit. It's not like this fake prospect, but I'm, I'm just not confident enough right now to say he's the 14th pick. And anyone who does so with confidence on Pakyshevsky, I think, is just lying because there's, there is no confidence here. Like, there just can't be any confidence. You can decide that, you know what, this package of skills at seven foot tall, if the mobility translates and the shooting translates, the upside is just so vast that we can decide to take him at number eight or whatever. And I'm not specific, like specifying that the Knicks like him, right? I'm just like throwing out a number. <laughs> Knicks Twitter right? will go nuts, man. I was the RJ Hampton video and you would have thought that, you know, I told him the Knicks were taking him based on the response. Right. Like, we need to get them going. You can make the case that this particular set of skills is just so valuable that you have to dice roll, right? Uh, because he can be the gen- like genuine difference maker for a team. I don't know that I'm quite there. I get the argument, but you really have to buy into him being able to be something defensively. And while he shows some very real mobility and shows some very real rim protection potential, so much of it just depends on strength, like and strength that we don't know that he's going to be able to develop long term. And if he does, he is going to be an awesome difference maker. But if he doesn't, he's probably not an NBA player like that. That is that is a chasm of difference. Yeah, he's an all-star. He's, he's back playing for Olympiacos. Uh, the Stepien comes out, too. They said that his team played a lot of zone. So it's like, is he a good defender or is he a good zone defender? doesn't matter anymore because now the NBA is his own league, I guess. But he does have long arms. He's going to have to learn not to arm rebound as much. He does have a burst defensively to get lanes and disrupt, deflect. Like He'll jump passing lanes out on the perimeter and then convert for a dunk. Again, the competition is great, but there's stuff there where he's not just this post defender that's going to box shots to the rim like he can i don't know how much he can switch but he can hold guys a little bit uh who are your kind of like comps for him i don't think that there is one <laughs> okay like that's a that's a cop out i understand that but yeah no no it's... that's part of the problem with evaluating him almost is like you can't really compare it to anything that exists right now because he's so much more quick twitch than porzingis right like it's Right. Not even not even the same stratosphere, those two, in terms of quick twitch, right? Like I mean he's a lot more quick twitch than like 
Vucevic. Um, is it like almost like the closest thing is like Siakami in that league? I mean, he's he's whoever you want in that league because he's so he's you know, right. semi-dominant. Like he's like almost do, freaking yeah, Anthony Davis in that league, but like right. he's not okay. Anthony Davis, obviously. No, I don't think so. Like, I mean, who would you say? Because like that—that's what I really oh, struggle I don't have with. One. It I don't as have well. one. Yeah, no, just like the the size. I was like, ah, foreign size, Porzingis, but that, I know it's not a good comp. Like you could maybe almost bring up like, but he can dribble, and like Robert Covington yep. can't dribble. Like there isn't there isn't a guy that makes total sense. Like Bam can't really shoot. Like he can dribble and handle the ball. Like you know, in a similar manner in that setting right to what bam does in the nba but you know it's not he's not bam either i don't he's impossible i think to be able to evaluate in many ways and the skill set is so tantalizing that you almost like teams are gonna have to roll the dice at some point they, they just absolutely have to because the upside is worth it um yeah there's there's teams rooting for him to go to the second round and i don't know if he's gonna make oh there, there's no way that. that guy gets to the second round i think there's an no, I know, but I'm, I'm saying like there, there, there's a there's a camp that's like, yeah, right, right. Oh, if he if he gets we'll to see. the second one, round, I'm def- definitely gonna follow. Like if he gets to the second round, there's no way he's getting past Dallas at 31. Like I don't know if he gets past Dallas at 18. Right. Just and, and that has nothing to do with like me saying that Dallas likes him, but like Tony Ronzoni and that international scouting department is just insane. And by the way, if Dallas was to pass on him once or twice. The rest of the league should wonder, wait, why? Because there is no one better at digging up information and figuring out what makes these guys tick than Tony Ronzoni in the Dallas scouting department. Yeah, they've had some that, that's for sure. Man, the whole the whole moving thing, Penny, it's a it's a killer. I will tell you that. I'll never do it. I will move again, but I, I don't know if I'll do it on my own. I'm smiling ear to ear because I'm such a diehard Coors Light fan. So for you to read that ad... And have me here, just serendipitous. I'm, I'm very happy with that. Yeah, that's not like, an ad for an. I'm not. An ad, that's not an ad for an ad. It's authentic. Yeah, I mean, like I remember uh, watching the Celtics game three. I, I really, I was just unwinding on a Saturday, legitimately, and I had a Coors Light, and it was delightful. And then I went up and grabbed another one. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, I, I would imagine that you probably spent that Saturday night doing the same. Uh, yeah, I was more of a Sunday guy again. Like I said, I took my Saturday off Sunday, watching a lot of Boston sports, a lot of football. It was perfect. Oh, that's a that's a that's a fantastic day, Penny. Uh, let's uh, let, let's move on though. Let's talk. I don't know. Do you want to talk about uh, you want to talk about the bubble and just like kind of draft takeaways for the bubble? Maybe this is the way we'll do it. We'll talk about the bubble and mm-hmm. this idea of. The bubble and the way that the bubble has affected NBA teams and the way that team building and specific types of teams have advanced in the playoffs this year and whether or not that will result in recency bias in a positive or negative way toward the NBA draft in 2020. Because I think it's really interesting. Like, I think there is a good chance that teams look at what Miami has done and look at 
how some of the role players for Denver, even like guys like Gary Harris and Paul Millsap and Jeremy Grant and Michael Porter Jr. and Tory Craig, like these guys are all athletic somewhere between six foot four and six foot nine, like maybe Michael Porter six foot ten, I guess. Um, but doesn't play like that, obviously. Uh, it does around the basket in terms of rebounding, but definitely more athletic than your typical six foot ten guy. Finding these kind of athletes who can shoot and who are versatile defensively, and you can obviously, we've talked about Miami's roster. Look at the guys that the Lakers have had success playing, like Danny Green and Contavious Caldwell-Pope. You look at the guys that the Celtics have built their roster around in terms of the wing position. I really do wonder if teams start to inch those guys up the draft board a little bit. Yeah, uh, so part of it too is, the recency bias, it's usually reserved for the NCAA tournament. There's a, there's a guy or two that has a great tournament in March, and then it just parlays that into a, a higher draft position. The, the Malachi yeah. Richardson, for instance. Great. I was going to say the Zach Collins. They're 2017 for Gonzaga. He comes off the bench. He has 14 points, 13 rebounds, six blocks, the national semifinal. And then they lose the national championship to North Carolina. He goes 10th over. Guess who? I'm out of bio. So, like, that stuff does happen i like i'm with you on i think kind of what you're describing for denver though is the the versatile wings with socks that we're talking about for miami too like there's just going to be a more of an emphasis on taking those type of guys and and i'd also say the duncan robinson stuff with floor spacers too like is that aaron neesmith is that a guy deeper like a, a jordan awara who rob Duster wrote about last week is the guy uh those shooters, as as someone in the NBA said to me too, they're always in motion, right? So it's like Duncan Robinson. It wasn't like catch and shoot. All oh, the heat action, they'd hit the high post, yep. hit the low post. He'd screen away. He'd dive. He'd run back and another screen. Hope they switch. He is an inch. He's he's pulling up. He can fade. He can hit shots on the move. That's why, like, I'm not as quick to say that somebody in the in this in that does stuff like Duncan. Uh, but did come off a lot of action. We've talked about that before at Vanderbilt, but I don't know if necessarily there's a a perfect fit there that that's in his mold. Yeah. I think Naismith's probably the closest one that I've seen, you know, somewhere between six foot five and six foot six, six ten wingspan has size, does have the quick release, does get his feet set. The biggest difference though, between Duncan Robinson and the general floor spacer is kind of something you alluded to there. Duncan can just get more shots off than other guys because his release is so quick. And because he's so good at setting his feet so quickly, there isn't really a guy in this class that I think does that at his level. And look, he's gotten better at it since he left Michigan. By the way, the funniest thing in the world to me is that he came off the bench for this Michigan team that went to the uh, NCAA finals with Isaiah Livers and Muhammad Ali Abdurrahman in the starting lineup. Like Devin Booker was a sixth man. We'll get to that in a minute. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Like the guy that probably stands out the most to me as just like a super ridiculous high-level shooter is Sam Merrill. I actually yeah. have Sam Merrill as a top 40 guy now in this class because his ability to shoot and just get rid of guys as an off-ball spacer is kind of ridiculous. Like you go back, not in his senior year, but to his junior year, they played Arizona State in Las Vegas, if I remember correctly, at one of those MTEs. He made Lou Dort look bad. Like he made Lou Dort genuinely look terrible. In that game. And Lou Dort has very quickly emerged as one of the better defenders in the NBA. Now, the difference between Sam Merrill and Lou Dort is that 
or Sam Merrill and Duncan Robinson is that Duncan is probably two or three inches bigger than Sam Merrill. And there is a very real kind of value to having a guy who's six foot seven that can do this versus someone that's somewhere between six foot four and six foot five doing this. Is he, how old is Sam? Is he 23? Sam Merrill is 24. 24. Okay. Which by the way, I I, I, I believe is how old Duncan Robinson was when he got to the NBA. Okay. Good spin. Uh, I I thought when you said Sam Merrill, I thought you were going to say when he beat Malachi Flynn, uh, and the, the to hit that shot over the top because uh, you watch Malachi Flynn tape so religiously. But yeah, no, that, that type of it, it definitely plays into it. And I touched on it there too. Like, does the age matter? I mean, you had a tweet about all rookie teams this year. I mean, first team had two 23 year olds and a 25 year old, second team had two 22 year olds and a 23 year old. We talk about, you know, excluding Tyrell Terry, Grant Riller's 23, Malachi Flynn's 22, uh, Winston and Pritchard are both 22, Devon Dawson's 21. And Brandon Clark was 23 when he was drafted. Uh, yep. Devontae Graham was 23, which was reminded to me by Austin Bunce, who I work with. There are guys now. Is that becoming less of an issue, or do you think it's still something you look at? And the analytics aren't going to polish if you're that old versus Tyrell Terry at 19 years old. Well, I, I think Lewis, that. You know, same thing, 19 years old. Well, I think the big thing is that to find stars, stars are more often going to be found younger in the draft, in my opinion. Uh, Luka Doncic at 19. Uh, Bam Adebayo got drafted after his freshman year, I believe, at 19. Um, even Kawhi Leonard, I believe, was 20. LeBron James, obviously, was a high school entry. Giannis was uh, 18, I believe, when drafted. Jamal Murray was a freshman. Jason Tatum was a freshman. Jalen Brown was a freshman. Uh, you know, Jimmy Butler was obviously a senior, but Jimmy Butler's path is so circuitous that it will never be replicated again, right? Like, I think that it's always going to be easier to find star-level players that have only played one or two years in college, but I have strongly believed for a while that getting more veteran guys who are a bit more mature is probably a better pathway to getting role players in the NBA. Uh, for instance, like the guys that stand out to me, Xavier Tillman, uh, Grant Riller is a guy that I really like as well. Malachi Flynn, obviously I've talked about a lot on this podcast. Uh, Desmond Bain is a guy that I've moved up damn near to the top 20 in this class. Um, just a guy that's physical, strong, elite level shooter. Uh, a lot of like a Joe Harris type in Desmond Bain, in my opinion. Uh, Elijah Hughes is pretty darn close to being a first rounder for me right now. Josh Green is someone that I really don't know if I buy the jump shot, but he's versatile enough to guard a ton of different positions. And if the jump shot comes around, he's probably a starter. And you kind of just have to account for potential jump shot stuff. Like Cassius Stanley's probably a top 40 guy in this class because of his athleticism. And if you think there's even a chance he's going to shoot it, that really matters. Like getting guys that are wing size and have athleticism and have fluidity and have the ability to defend multiple positions. That's kind of the ball game right now. And I threw in Cassius Stanley there as well because Cassius Stanley, I believe, is going to be 21 before he ever plays an NBA game despite being a um, freshman out of – Yeah, a couple, couple reclasses happens. Yeah. Yeah, actually, he is already 21. I'm sorry. So, yeah. 
So you're okay with the age thing as long as it's later for a second round. You're not reaching for the 23-year-old, maybe in the top 20, but obviously as you're Sam Merrill states, you, you, you see him as some value in the 40s. I do, yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm comfortable taking Sam Merrill in the top 40. To be honest, like I'm like Jordan Wara. So like the difference between Jordan Wara and a Sam Merrill to me is that Sam Merrill generates those shots off of off ball action. Whereas Jordan Wara is more of like a spot up relocate guy where like, exactly like that. That's the big difference. Like, I don't know that Jordan Wara is necessarily going to generate those types of shots. And by the way, it's why I have guys like Devon Dotson, Nico Mannion, Jaden McDaniels, Jamias Ramsey, outside Vernon Carey as well outside of my top 40 because I really think that it's a little bit harder and it takes a longer time to develop those guys into role players uh, than it does you know the, the guys like you know Bulmaro and uh, you know I, nonetheless so let me ask you this we're, while we're still talking bubble this is like a little bit of a spin here I'm working on does Kentucky win the national championship every year if it's played at the bubble at the wide world sports? <laughs> I mean, look, look so here's uh, half joking, but Devin Booker, Suns undefeated, four of his last game, 35 points. Tyler Hero, 37-point game, helped carry him. Bam. We, we, I don't know if we're allowed to say his name anymore on the podcast. Jamal Murray is now a superstar. Uh, Anthony Davis in the finals. Makes some Dennis Cantor jokes. He didn't really play there, but he, he's been in the Celtics. I say that more as a you see the success of Kentucky shooters in Devin Booker and Tyler Hero. Those guys, for the most part, in Kentucky ran baseline to baseline catch and shoot. A little bit off the dribble, not much. Now you see Tyler Hero more creating. Devin Booker plays some lead guard at points. Does this cause anyone to say, you know what, Tyrese Maxey's right there. He's 6'3", he has a 6'6 wingspan. Does he fit into this kind of mold of a Kentucky guy who played within himself, within a system, but he might have some stuff to kind of unleash like you had talked about had been helped before. Yeah, it actually, it's made me kind of rethink and reassess Maxi a little bit. The thing that worries me a little bit about Maxi is the low release point on the jumper. Totally. Yeah. And he pumps it low on the catch. Yeah. Like I, I think that that's going to be a little bit tough for him. Like I'm going to be fascinated to see the work that he's been doing to try and raise that release point. Cause I think he's going to have to just straight up, uh, to have a ton of success in the NBA. Otherwise, you're talking about him. If he's going to be a pull-up shooter, kind of like a Tyler Hero has become, right? That guy probably needs to take 27-foot threes versus 24-foot threes, and there are diminishing returns when you move back farther beyond the three-point line. And, and Max, only shot, I believe, 29% from three this year. I mean, he's an 80-plus percent free-throw shooter, but to your point, with a low, low release and he does prefer pulling up, it's hard to do uh, from yeah. 27 feet. I will say that too, like on Maxi, if I remember correctly, was like somewhere around like 35 from three uh, throughout high school on like a ton of attempts. So um, I think this year was just kind of a shitty shooting year that yeah. was just uh, uncharacteristic, you know. But the question is, like, can he become what Patrick Beverly has become as a three point shooter, getting up to 38 to 40? Or is he a 35 to 37 guy, which is obviously inherently more valuable or more or less valuable? Yeah. It, like, do you believe in the the kind of like showcase thing for Kentucky being a real bit? The reason I say it is, and just the reason I say that for Carl Towns, who went to school around here, he went to St. Joe's Metuchen in New Jersey. 
he was on the same team as Wade Baldwin, who was a, a first round pick, and Brian Tyree, who averaged twenty points at Ole Miss, and he had the whole offensive arsenal, but there were conditioning and some consistency issues to his game. He goes to Kentucky, Cal and Kenny Payne light a fire under him, but it's mostly from the low block. He didn't know what he could do from the perimeter. He's only two for eight from three the whole year. In, in high school, he shot that in some singular games. Uh, this year in the NBA, he shot 277 threes, shot 355 the year before. Now, that Kentucky team was 38-1, had nine players that ended up in the NBA. Devin Booker, who mentioned, was the sixth man. They had eight players averaging 20 minutes per game and eight points per game. So it was an embarrassment of riches, but do you buy into the trend at all that, like, there are guys there that are, are kind of not showcased as much just because they play into more of an SEC system to win. So I think it's a tough conversation because in regard to their the pro potential that they showcase on a night-in, night-out basis, I think that Kentucky probably does not allow them to show everything that they're capable of. Having said that, I also think that Kentucky guys tend to be much more prepared to play in the NBA from a like night in, night out, just what the grind is, what it takes, what the hard work is, um, all of the off-the-court preparation – I think that they're much more ready. And I think that's why you see the high level of success from most of those guys. Like even PJ Washington looked great this year. Uh, Mm -hmm. Kelvin Johnson in the bubble looked really good and looks like he's going to be a really good role player. Like I think that Cal and that staff do an incredible job of preparing guys for what the grind of the NBA is like and how you have to improve your game to play at that level. I don't think that they necessarily show everything that they're capable of when they're at Kentucky because of the offensive system that Cal runs in terms of the dribble drive and, you know, having guys come off of these like pin down screens and uh, all kind of different stuff. Like, I, I think that it's not as easy to showcase what you're great at at Kentucky, but it definitely helps you down the road and definitely helps you from day one in the NBA. Like I I would, I would, even though you don't necessarily get to show everything you're capable of, I would absolutely suggest almost any prospect go to Kentucky if they get the offer. Right. No, I'm just throwing there's food for thought. I play basketball at UMass and UMass basketball, UMass basketball because of John Collar. So I want none of the milk. I'm just throwing it out there as a, an interesting thought piece of the guys in the bubble, the guys have success, and then you go back and look at their college numbers, and it's like, huh, that was a little bit lower than I remember it being. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. Like, there's been this revisionist conversation about Tyler Hero, right? Like, oh, Tyler Hero should have been a top five pick. Tyler Hero did not make second team all SEC for a reason. Like eight guys, the SEC coaches voted eight guys over Tyler Hero last year into the all SEC first team. Tyler Hero had like zero points against Southern Illinois when he played against Duke in that first game. Yeah, Champions Classic, yep. He looked like a boy amongst men 
against guys like Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson, right? He got much better throughout the course of the season and has continued to get much better to the point where he has surpassed, especially Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett, or yeah, R.J. Barrett in my opinion. But he also like got drafted where he should have been drafted at the end of the day because he's like a six foot five kid that isn't a crazy athlete tried hard defensively, but still got picked on a little bit defensively. And really the only thing he did super, super, super well was shoot it at Kentucky and like create some offense here and there. But based off of what we've seen, you can even go back to his high school tape in Wisconsin and like, yeah, you could see some of this stuff, but you never know how that's going to translate whenever you're watching it against like a bunch of six foot one white kids from Wisconsin. Right. Yeah. It's a poker argument a little bit. Uh, I mean, I think people saw him as a, a better prospect. The sec numbers, they're a little deceiving in that you're, you're going to be, I don't have it in front of me. I'm guessing upperclassmen laden for most of those spots. I'm with you that the 13th or 14th, like that range probably did make sense. And, a testament to what they do at Kentucky and playing against fellow pros and getting in a, a high level weight program and learning how to prepare yourself for the NBA. You can't undersell that either. Well, th- there's probably not been any player or any two players in the last couple of years that have benefited more from developmental situations than Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero going from Kentucky to Miami. Cause Miami is also absolutely exceptional. When it comes to developing players, uh, they're great with getting guys in optimal shape. They're great with uh, figuring out what they're good at, accentuating what they're good at and putting them in that position to succeed. Like you go back and watch Duncan Robinson's G League tape from last year. They were doing all the same shit in the G League right. in order to prepare him for a potential opportunity in the NBA. So everything that they do from a developmental standpoint and I'm sure it's even more now with Jimmy Butler being there and the iron sharpens iron mentality that that organization has. Getting to go against Jimmy Butler every day, I am certain that really helped Tyler Hero develop into what he is now. And the $20 cups of big face coffee. Uh, <laughs> that being said, uh, part of it too, somebody, in, and we're seeing all these like, Miami Heat culture uh, articles pop back up too is recycled news, whatever. Uh, part of it, I talked to somebody who works in NBA circles and they said, they talked similar to you about Miami's development and they said for shoot around, you know, there's guys out there early working on stuff. They grab a trainer, they grab a coat. And this person asked somebody like a trainer who was involved with the Heat. They said, like, why? You know, I work with a lot of NBA guys. I see a lot of teams come out here. Like, this is the most organized buttoned up thing I'm like what's the deal and they said everyone's afraid of pat like let pat rally down get it like it's that's part of the mystique and it's part of the reason some of the reason why guys go there and it's like jimmy butler in, in one of those stories said his agent didn't even talk about like the the miami beach or going out he just wanted to be part of a, a culture and create a, a locker room of excellence and, and have pat rally at the helm so the last thing that we should talk about too here is there are all these guards kind of at the bottom of the first round. And I've actually kind of moved down on a lot of them. Like even my beloved Malachi Flynn, like I've pushed him down four or five spots because, not much of a push, but okay. yeah, I know. Like 
But at the end of the day, like dropping someone four or five spots, like for an NBA team, like that's the difference between taking him and not taking him. Like that's the difference between him being the highest person yep. on your board at 27 if he gets 27 and not being the highest person on your board. So I do think it's actually like a bit of a substantial push. And I've moved them down at the expense of these wings because as we kind of alluded to earlier in the podcast with Kemba Walker, it's really hard to keep these small guards on the court in the playoffs right now. Like it's just really, really hard because they get headhunted constantly. And like the guys that I'm thinking of, like Cassius Winston, even Malachi to an extent, Grant Riller is strong, but like he's still probably six foot two six, and a half, yeah, something six, like two, that. Two, three, yeah. Yeah. Um you know, Nico Mannion, uh even like Emmanuel Quickly, who's someone that like six foot three can shoot it, he battles, but it, it's it's tough at a certain level to be able to deal with that kind of stuff. So is there anything that you've seen throughout the playoffs that has made you question these smaller guards and kind of parsing through these smaller guards uh at the end of the first, early second round range? I mean, definitely some of the action Miami was running with Kemba with trying to put him in switches and isolate him on shooters and put him in the post. Uh, he couldn't switch really on when they screened him. And there was a few miscues that led to layups and just kind of pointing at each other. Before I dive in too much, let me spin it back and say, all right, from a narrative perspective, do we have this conversation if Toronto had beat Boston and maybe beats Miami and you're in the finals of – Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry's a backcourt. I think my answer is maybe. And you try to like fit that a little bit. Like right now, yeah, it's 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 big wings, it's smaller, quote unquote bigs that fit that mold. It's those Elijah Hughes, Desmond Bain, Robert Woodard. Like those guys are more appealing. And and maybe the guys we've talked about before when we talked about this the last podcast, maybe these guys become the the kickbacks of all right, we need to draft them. We can get them, you know, once Trey Burke is, is on team five or campaigns on team six and don't have to right. take a pick here. And you, you take one of those bigger, longer Josh Green types. So in regard to like the Toronto thing, I think it gets back to something that I think is drastically undervalued still even a little bit in drafting and evaluation. Like Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet, those guys are strong as shit, man. They are so strong. Like they play way bigger than their size defensively. Like you can't back them down as like a six foot six wing and, and like get a good shot on them. Like, yeah, they struggle in terms of if they get matched up with a, uh, what I guess, a, even Daniel Tice, like six foot 11. He's just going to shoot over him if he gets that position. Right. But between the fact that they're really strong and the fact that they're really, really smart in terms of rotation and in terms of uh, just knowing where to be in terms of the way that they think the game, I think it's really, really hard to look at them as a archetype of what a potential backcourt could be. Like, I, I really think that they are almost anomalies in terms of how high their basketball IQ is like Fred Van Vliet is not like a physical star. He is someone who thinks the game in an exceptionally high level. Kyle Lowry has a shot to get to the hall of fame one day because he's one of the smartest basketball players in the NBA. Like uh, it's, it's hard. I think to look at them as the model in my right. opinion. I, I thought it was interesting though, that around the time the, the Raptors I don't know if it was before they put ball or maybe it was during 
and I'm just doing my homework, reading up on on guards that we're talking about now. And both Malachi Flynn and Grant Riller said, yeah, I aspire to be Fred Van Vliet. So, like, they knew that that was kind of like the wave of, yep. I can be that undersized guard, but he starts and, you know, that guy's probably going to make 50 to $20 million. I think Riller's in that mold a little bit and that he is stronger up top. I don't know how much you can back him down. And he's also showed a little bit, too, of flashes of ability to kind of fight through and around screens. Obviously, if you're posted up by a 6'9 guy, like, you're going to be in trouble. But he's quicker laterally and knows how to use his body. So I feel more comfortable with kind of the rest of the guys right there. I mean, some may take Tyrell Terry if you think he's a star because he's 19 years old. And that plays back to where he's talking about. But yeah. I think Riller is kind of mine out of the uh, this whole group here. And just like, like he was, he was six in high school. He grew from the end of high school into college, and then like just quickly like has a cool backstory in that Earl Grant was an assistant at Clemson. He's recruiting his AU teammate Kerry Blackshear, who played for his independent team, the Q6 All Stars. And then ironically, I'm working at Reebok camp at the time. We took Kerry Blackshear and Matt Milan, who's another high major kid, ended up at Central Florida. So what teams would do is the back end, we had a team tournament. If your kids weren't in camp, they'd fly up the rest of the kids of Philadelphia and play a team tournament. I vaguely remembered Grant Riller being on the team. I had to do some digging, and I did find a great write-up from Rob Douster. What I saw, six-foot-two guard from Orlando, beat people off the dribble to the rim, hit a couple threes, split the defense. On ball screens, and dunked all over one of the best athletes in the class in 2015, Chris Silva, who went to South Carolina in the NBA. Abilene Christian and Kennesaw State are his only offers right now. So Earl Grant takes Charleston. Him uh, got better for his ACL, plays on and off the ball. I'm just intrigued by his trajectory too. Yeah, I mean, I've got a first-round grade on Riller. That's not going to change. Just his ability to get separation off the bounce, the pace, the tempo he plays with. He just knows how to beat guys both in isolation and in ball screens. I don't love the shot mechanics. I think it's going to take a little bit of time for him. Like he has that bit of like a slingshot up top that is concerning to me. But at the end of the day, I think he's going to be someone that certainly plays off the bench as a scorer for the NBA in a long time. And like if I was the Celtics, I would be very interested in Grant Riller, even though, again, he's like kind of that smaller guard that we talked about they shouldn't necessarily be in love with. Having said that, they do just really need more scoring pop off the bench. Right, and is he too close to Carson Edwards or, or somebody like that? And the other knock is that they were 17-14, tied for third in their league in a mid-major league. If he's a dude, should they be better? He, he didn't have a ton of arsenal around him, and all the defensive schemes were about stopping him. So when you watch him on a pick-and-roll stuff, he's they throw the bag at him, every different look. And he was still successful, still average, I think, 20 points per game. His, his three-point numbers, I think, improved 33 to 36 Raw field goal percentage dipped like four percentage points, but he'll he'll be better as a as a piece, and I'm on board with him as this microwave scorer as well. Is there anyone else you want to talk about before we get out of here? Uh, we covered Malachi. I, I guess I'm just kind of what's your what's your 30 second takeaway on Tyrell Terry with this new workout video of, of this size? Is he going to be this top 15 guy? Is he top 30? Does he is he fooling people by getting bigger? Just what's your kind of thoughts? So he's definitely like a top 25 guy for me. Um, Not probably won't go into like the top. He won't go into the lottery for me, for sure. Um, Elite level shooter. I worry as much about his live dribble ball handling and passing as I do about the body. 
uh, everything he does is come to a jump st- jump stop, then make a pass. And those windows just close down in the NBA too quickly. Having said that, he's also probably the best or second best shooter in this class. And there's a place for that. Now, the body stuff is interesting. He's still only 175 pounds. <laughs> like, And he put on 20 pounds of muscle? Everyone like yeah. undersells their like pre workout weight once they start working out. Uh, Put twenty pounds of muscle. I don't know if that's possible, but he. I mean, he look. He does look significantly bigger and. and no, it, kind of, in his case, I believe it. He looks enormous yeah. compared to what he looked like. Yeah, I, I mean, I, so we had him at the Hall of Fame Classic in Kansas City. Start the year, he had forty points or two games. He was fourteen from thirty field. Everyone I talked to it said like he. It wasn't the one and done thing. Was like never in his head, and then just kind of like. Toward the end of the year, it was yeah, you have a, you have a chance here. So it made sense. I regard the crop of these guards too. I'm worried about who he defends. I mean, he when they played Oregon at the end of the year, um, he had six points on two of nine shooting in the last regular game. Peyton Pritchard had twenty nine six and five, and he did not guard Peyton Pritchard. Like he, they're they're trying to hide him away from the ball. I mean, opposing teams ran action to try to expose him. Uh, Dejon Davis was mostly guarding him. So can he guard point guards, fully guard off guards? I know he can play off guard offensively because of the way he can shoot, but what does he do down the other end, especially when we're seeing in the playoffs now how much defense really matters? Yeah. We'll put it this way. Versatility defensively matters. Yeah, I'm fascinated in Tyrell because – I want to like 90% of what he does. Maybe that's high. Maybe I like 75% of what he does. But the two things that I worry about, the strength in regard to defensive switchability and matchup issues and the live dribble passing are two pretty enormous flaws when it comes to having to play point because you could play him as a point guard next to a big wing creator, I think like a Jimmy Butler, for instance, if Miami wanted to take him at 20, but I don't know if that's going to work. I don't know. I really, yeah, I mean, he, despite size, he was a, a decent rebounder from the guard position, four and a half rebounds a game, 3.2 assists. I mean, not gouty numbers, but at the same time, it's, it's better than what you would, anticipate if he was 150 155 pounds whatever he was yeah i mean his, his release to it to me is like a tad slow but he knows how to make you pay when you go under screens and if you watch stanford they ran a lot of cool action for him where he'd like come off a end and fade to the corner off a flare or yep. get a back turn a low block and then get a down screen uh his size obviously limited what he could do and he's not super quick uh and then better kind of beating his man with a head of steam and transition as opposed to you know, we're both starting at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I like Tyrell. I would take him in the first round. I don't think I would take him in the lottery. And I don't think I would even take him in the top 20. Because I, I just worry about the defensive matchup stuff. Like, the other guy that, like, we haven't talked about here is Trey Jones. Right? Like, Trey Jones is small. He's tough. He's physical defensively. But, like, where does he fit in the modern NBA now? Well, if you make shots, there, there's a place on the floor there. And we've talked about before, if you make shots, the move as well. I mean, defensive player of the year in the ACC. Now, I think he'll be fine. Um, he's lower on a lot of boards than kind of, I think, you bumped him down. You might be higher than most, but I think he's in like the 25 to 35 range in most of those places. I and mean, he is a higher floor than people are giving him credit for as well. 
Yeah, I, I think he probably will be more in like the 20 to 25 range for me, uh, probably on the lower end of that range. But he's it's close. It's really close. Like him in Tyrell Terry is a fascinating conversation to me because Trey is stronger, can do more with him defensively, can actually guard at the point of attack and can actually be a legible like passer and distributor and gets out in transition and makes really good plays. Tyrell Terry did show more of the distribution ability in AAU settings for the Adidas circuit. But uh, if I remember correctly, finished second on the Adidas circuit and assists per game. With, with Zeke Najee, Matthew Hurt, and Pat McCaffrey. D1 Minnesota. Yeah, they were really good. That was a really, really yeah. good, fun team. But <laughs> a lot of that stuff came out in transition because they played really, really up-tempo. Uh, and Tyrell was the catalyst for that in a lot of ways, even more than like five-star top 10 overall recruit Matthew Hurt was. But I haven't seen a crazy amount of it in the half court yet. Just haven't. Yeah. Well, I, that's one of the things that I'm disappointed about, about the group workouts, combine stuff, lack thereof, because Trey Jones is from all reports accounts as competitive as a guy as you're going to find. And I think he wants every like I, I think he's making a list of like all these guys to go against to work out against and maybe i'm crazy but he's a end of the first round guy that ends up being a contributor that we look around and say why did we miss on that but yeah. you gotta go big gotta go wings so you're right these guys are all probably taking a, a five ranking bump based on what's happening in nba finals and the recency bias that we all have to live with penny tell the people where they can find uh your twitter account certainly because yeah. uh, you're going to have some interesting stuff coming out. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. I mean, this is a good draft where I have inroad to a lot of guys, so I'm going to keep on trying to pull clips in here, clips here and there of players that we can get and uh, post that RJ thing. Just posted a quick Nico Mannion one the other day, too. My Twitter is M-P-E-N-N, the number one, and then E. My manager's working on at Penny, so I can um, pay off the, I think, like soccer mom that has that or something, so I can improved by my lack thereof of a brand yeah we'll 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 talk about that offline offline okay i'll trade you a uh, a running back for a wide receiver for that yeah. oh that's a <laughs> hot damn i'm in hot take just spiked it walking off the court yeah <laughs> uh we'll be back next week with more on the nba finals uh I don't know necessarily when I'll be back next week because uh, it will be literally right in the middle of my move. Uh, So we shall see. Uh, But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.